Hello, everyone, and welcome to our text messages podcast. This podcast was recorded with Rabbi Alan Allman, Jonah Tobin, and of course, myself, Hannah Carney. Uh, We talked about a number of different themes, including the idea of idealization and idolatry. And the text that we grounded our conversation in was Cain and Abel. And so I hope you enjoy, listen, follow along, and ask yourselves some of these questions. So I've I've been thinking a a lot about um, kind of the idealization of different lives. Um, And specifically, this came up um, with friends of mine, college students about body image um, and certain pieces of our, certain pieces of our bodies that we want changed or shaped. And very specifically, very specifically, I want this specific part changed in this specific way. Um, And I've also been thinking a lot about thinking about the jobs or um, different pathways for life, the idealization of of those different pathways. And from early childhood, having obscured some of the hardships of certain pathways because I idealized them so much. And, um, and so in that way, both of those elements really combining to think about what ways do we idealize our life um, or a life um, and try to shoot for it almost as a, as a piece of perfection, as a target of perfection. I think it's really interesting too what you said made me think about right now we're living our lives in these two like very very different ways where one way is no one is seeing us and we're sort of living in our own world and maybe doing the things that we want to do because we want to do them and not thinking about how other people will see those actions um and then the other piece is we're on zoom all the time and we're literally seeing ourselves and our faces talking to people all the time, you know, you almost can't get away in a normal meeting. If you were, or when you were having coffee with friends, you would see your friend and now you see yourself and your friend. Um, or if you were in a meeting or a class, you would just see everyone else around you. And now you're faced to see everyone else around you and yourself in a completely different way. And I think there's this piece of like being able to escape from the way that you present yourself to the world. And then also being completely forced to always see the way you present yourself to the world, which are are two very different and very polarizing experiences right now. Yeah, and I think also another component that's important is the answer is not to just simply let go of the idealizations and to simply say, okay, don't worry about them. Because I think the other thing I'm thinking about in this is that for me, the idealizations have obscured because when I'm talking with friends, specifically about body image, often the conversation ends up going, someone talks about an insecurity and the people around them say, oh no, that's something that is actually really defining for me of you in a really impactful and powerful way. Well. Um- Let's start micro and then go macro. We are in Genesis chapter four, verses one through four. So if you are in JPS, um, 
Tanakh, this will be page seven, Genesis chapter four, verses one through four. Hannah here from the future. Uh, this is the part where you can pause and read and regroup with us in a second. So um, I'm picking up on the, the first theme that Jonah raised. And as you read through this passage about two individuals being born and actually arriving at early adulthood, what's not there? So there's like sort of a job description almost, or a description of their characteristics, but there's not a description of what they look like um, and who they are as like physical people. Absolutely right. Uh, absolutely right. Don't stop. What else isn't there? Well, that's kind of an unfair question, but anything about their childhood? Anything. Anything about how their parents treated them? Nothing. Anything about their relationship to each other? Nothing. What did they like? What did they dislike? Nothing. And this is, as we're thinking about what isn't in here, this is what story in Torah about human beings. First murder, the first. Um... Good, but don't stop. Very good, but don't stop. It's like it's so easy, it's hard sometimes. It's the first story about the first human beings born of human beings outside the garden. So this is literally the starting trajectory point for humanity outside the garden when people are born of people. And it starts with two siblings. And it leads to, as you rightly said, Jonah, the first fratricide. But there's nothing about their early childhood. There's nothing about their preteens, their teenage years. There's nothing about anything. There's no description. Now, we're in the first story. What might that suggest to a thoughtful reader? It's almost like it says that's not important, um, which goes against everything that I feel like I would say. You know, I think every every story about a person, a, bi a biography, uh, anything, you're always like, well, where did you come from? What's your story? What, what you know, tell me about your childhood. Even when you meet someone, you say like, where are you from? What did you do? And there's just none of that. It, it really only comes into play who these people are once they are bringing an offering to God. Okay. You have left so many tall buildings, it's hard to know where to begin. I think a, I think a biography is a, sometimes different, though. Because for me, this is, this is about not judging. And whereas a biography, we've probably already judged the person for their actions. And whether it's a biography um, of somebody who does a lot of good or a lot of bad, we've probably already make, made that judgment versus, I think this is more like asking someone like the first time you meet them, where'd you come from? What was your childhood like? Let me um, 
say that we have a template for how all of Genesis through Deuteronomy will work. And the template is actually what you both have just been saying. The first thing that you'll be told about anybody is their relationship with God. That's the starting point. And in that sense, from the perspective of the text, all the things that we would say count, I go back to what Jonah just said. No, no, don't judge the person on what happened when they were 14. Don't even think about it. Let's just see what happens the first time they come to God. And, and over and over again, as you, if you just think about, say, another famous passage of Brahman Sarai, basically it all starts when God tells them to go forth from their native land and their kindred and their father's house in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and they listen. Then we start to learn about them. But at that point, he's 75 and she's 65. We get a little bit, an incredible little bit about Moses. But basically, the, the Moses passage really begins with his mother's actions in relationship to him. And then he's standing at a burning bush at the age of about 79 or 80. So, what would it mean if I was to say to you, uh, Grace, Dove, um, sorry, uh, your story begins with the first time you came into anything with God. What story would you tell? It's, it's funny, I've been teaching um, confirmation classes for our seniors. And um, actually, Jonah helped me lead one of these classes. And uh, the conversation was about awe and connection to something bigger than yourself. And almost every story, uh, once the teens got into breakout rooms and shared these stories, started with some variety of, I was in Israel, in nature, in the wilderness and I had this experience of something bigger than myself you know almost everyone had one of those stories and I think for me it's so different I you know a few of those stories were deeply connected to me being in nature and there was like one moment when I was in high school and I was you know in just sort of wandering around a field at night um and it was just like this immense feeling of like wow there's something so much bigger um, and then the second was in Israel, um, in the desert at night, we were going for a hike and there was just something so powerful about that experience and just the, the giant silentness, um, that, that was, those were sort of those defining moments. Mm, I love that. That's so beautifully put. And, and I'll just jump in real fast, but I really want to hear what you're going to say too, Jonah. Um, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter what color your hair is. None of that matters in what you were just describing. For me, uh, one really quick one would be um, often when my family would go to Friday night services on the Mishkan Tefillah, there's the, the prayer in Hebrew on 
the um, right side, and then they, some English, sometimes poetry or writing on the left side. And I was always what my dad called like a left side reader, probably partially just because I couldn't understand the Hebrew, but I would uh, be going through And I can't remember if it was my mom or my dad, but there was one service where I was kind of flipping through and reading. And often I just go way off track and just like totally go far from where the prayer is and look down. And I kind of like whispered over to my mom or dad, um, Hey, I found God. Um, and they could tell that story a little bit better. Um, the other one is we had a fish, um, named Finney McGee, a nice Irish fish. And, uh, when the fish, when the fish died, uh, we were on the way to temple services, uh, like that, that week. And I said, mom, can I say like mourner's cottage for my fish? And my mom was like, no, you can't do that. Like that would, that would be totally disrespectful of like the people who's like are coming to temple today because their parents just died or their spouse just died. And she's like that you can't do that. And I kept pestering and kept pestering. And eventually we were sitting behind um, the former temple president who said, why don't you at least go ask, go ask Rabbi Siswine, go ask Joel and see what Joel says. And so I kind of scamper up to Rabbi Siswine and my mom comes, I think too. And we catch him right before services. I'm sorry. I was like, Rabbi Siswine, can I say Moore's Cottage for my fish? Probably like eight. And, and he said to my mom that there is one rule that breaks all other rules in Jewish life. And that is um, the ability to teach our children. And so I said Moore's Cottage for Finney McGee Tobin, mm. the Irish fish. That is so beautiful. Every now and then we get to hire a new rabbi at TBE. And when we, when we interview a new rabbi, we ask them that question. We ask them, okay, a kid comes up to you and it's probably based on exactly that story. Although I'm sure that you're probably not the only kid who's gone up to one of our clergy and asked if they can say Mourner's Cottage for, um, for their fish. But we ask them exactly that and the answer doesn't re- it doesn't really matter exactly what they say, so long as what they say is grounded in building relationship. Um, and it's one of those, like, it's probably the key question that we ask because we don't really care if they give us a halakhically accurate answer of, you know, well, Jewish law says that you can do this or this or this or this. What matters is how they respond to the human. You know, um... Wow, this is so beautiful and profound on so many different levels. Um, what we do with the first time somebody comes to God, when the eight-year-old comes to God for the first time, and if we receive the offering that the eight-year-old is bringing, what that means. Yeah. So, and I love the word that you use, scamper up. There's like this energy around it, which is just questions, comments, thoughts. 
what does it mean to come to God with an offering and for that offering not to be acceptable? Okay. Why is it? Why is it that Cain's offering is not acceptable and um, Abel's is? Okay, well, let's go. Um, we're in verse three in um, the course of time. Mm, well, I'll just leave that there. Cain means to gain or acquire. So Cain means gain. Abel, Hevel in Hebrew, means vapor or breath. Oh, so <laughs> what are you seeing? To gain is, is so material. Um, and just like is struck by the contrast there with vapor. What can be demonstrated with vapor? The other one I go to is almost like, of course, this is not what Abel means, but the other one I go to is like ink. Like what can be, as I sit here holding a pen, um, like what can be demonstrated with that um, that is, is so much less material. Um, right. Well, um, whether it was conscious or intuitive, and in your case, probably both knowing you, the pen is mightier than the sword. Oh, well, haven't we just sort of reiterated? Um, haven't we just um, reiterated vapor, pen, ink, gain, sword. And so what does it mean to um, say that here we are at the first passage of the first human beings, born of human beings, and there's two human beings, one's named gain and the other is named vapor. What might the text be trying to communicate there? Well, there's one person where the focus is on what they can get and one person whose focus is sort of more on, you know, I think of a vapor as being really connected to breath or something transient or ink or just this idea of it's not mine. It's something that kind of comes through me and you, you're seeing yourself more as a vehicle than as somebody who's collecting. There we go to, because now we're off to the races with the transiency because whether, you, about this idea of whether you think you're the, the, the starting point um, and um, idealization being about that that is the omniscient piece, that is the all-knowing sight of perfection and then when you start idolizing yourself, let's say I do change my body in the ways that I idealized, or I do get that job that I idealized, and then I think of myself as the being of perfection. No longer is God working through me, or am I the almost like receiver of God and the spirit and the Ruach, but I am, but I start to believe that I am the start of that. Yeah. I want to say you two have just really done huge quantum leaps in 
tracking how one enters into idealization, ideas, idealization, idolatry. If you think about what you two just said, you just really trace the process. It starts with me having an idea about something, and then I sort of turn that idea into something concrete, tangible that I am attempting to gain. And then when I gain it, the goal is to keep it. And what does it mean to say, no, God is a verb, we are verbs. And I wanna suggest in all our lives, we could all say, and remember things, oh, I used to really be interested in that, and now I don't even think about it anymore. And all the things that come and go in a lifetime of what you wanted or thought was in, or even just what you thought was interesting, forget about want, and then what is no longer interesting to us. And then there's new things that are interesting to us that we weren't even thinking about. I'm reminded of your beautiful story about baking challah the last time we met. Maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't of interest to you. Suddenly it is, but it's not just of interest to you, it's moving through you and, and being a gift to many others. But I could imagine easily in 10 years from now, you might be on to other things. So it's, it's that breath, it's that vapor. Well, the other word that's just kind of pulsating through this is ruach, the spirit that's moving through. You know, I could idealize or idolize Kala. You know, it could be something that becomes like every week I must make the time for this thing and I'm going to push everyone else and all of my other relationships out of the way or any moment of sort of like other meaningful experiences because this is the most important thing. Um, you know, I have to create the most delicious, most beautiful Kala in the whole wide world. And it would almost ruin the point. <laughs> Can I ask you to share what you shared before the beginning about teaching the same passage three different times? Yeah, so in the since the last time we all talked, I got to teach uh, based on our podcast to three different groups. And each group took our conversation and the text in a completely different direction. And it was just, it was like, incredibly freeing first to see, you know, the first group that I met with, I was like, wow, this is the direction that everyone's going to want to go in. This is like, everyone is going to want to talk about this one piece. Um, and then the next group had a completely different direction that they went in and it was like, wow, okay, well, maybe that's the direction it'll go in. And uh, I just finished leading the third group and it was a third direction. Um, and it was just so fluid, you know, it, we created something and talked about this text and it needed to go in a very different direction for every group. And that to me is an exquisite example of Havel, vapor, breath. And it's the huge difference between, okay, I've got this wonderful lecture and I'm just gonna deliver it over and over again. And it's not that the lecture is bad, but the lecture is that one thing. And what does it mean to actually be responsive to each group? And, you know, what I'm excited for you for, because I can see it happening, is one day you'll be in, I'll just pick uh, 
one of my new favorite places, North Dakota. And what it's like to teach a group of people whose life has been farming for multiple generations. Um, okay, it's a completely different context. And so what they're bringing to the room is a completely different set of things, not better or worse, but just if you've been farmers for three generations or more, there's just a certain way of looking at the world. And then you're someplace else and then there's that context and all the different rooms and all the different contexts. And then suddenly things start to shift and you realize how many different ways a text can go and still be the text and the people and the Ruach all coming together. Yeah, incredibly exciting. Yes, Jonah. There's a way to look at yourself flowing through those rooms. And there's also a way to look at it as those rooms flowing through you. Okay. Explicacy the play, monsieur. If you are the one flowing through those rooms, then you start to become the idol or at, at minimum a prophet. But if those rooms are flowing through you, then that is an experience that is open to all. Of course, it has to be some of both, but to view it much more as you are the receiver of those, of the, the, the people who surround you and their knowledge. Thinking about the term ecotone and where a jungle and a desert meet, which is, for example, pretty unusual, but in the place where they meet, something grows up that didn't quite exist before. Because a jungle is a jungle, a desert is a desert, but where the two meet, you'll get different plants, even different types of bacteria. What you're describing, Jonah, is, okay, here's somebody who grew up in a fishing village on the ocean that was also a military base that was also a tourist town, who then lives for 30 years in New England, who then finds himself through some whole quirky set of circumstances teaching in Fargo. And whatever I may or may not be bringing and whatever those rooms are bringing, there's this incredible excitement for the newness that everything, everybody's learning from each other, meaning they have a, their own relationship to the land and the text, and it's not a relationship I've ever experienced before. I have a set of relationships with things that they might not be so familiar with, and then we're off and running. But you're right, it's incredibly relational and symbiotic, you were gonna say. Uh, much of the way I've studied history has been about kind of, ice, especially American history, about isolating um, particularly a decade so let's talk about the 1930s and the Great Depression, and then let's talk about the 1940s and, and World War II. But what that misses is the fact that likely half the people that were alive for FDR's presidency were alive for Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Um, and how rarely that crosses my mind that the world the world wars, for example, were not different world wars. And I start to see that maybe just as I get older, hear people talk about 
my econ teacher talking about what inflation looked like in 1980 and what it was looking like now. That's not two separate time periods for him. That's, that's a memory that he has. And perhaps inflation is not exactly the most stunning imagery of it, but it's something that is so central to his life and his work right. that is built into his memory. So, amen. You've just named one of the things that is most on one of the, I'd say, top five things most on my heart in studying Torah is learning how to see the trajectories moving through the text so that one doesn't read, um, say, the book of Joshua in a, without seeing it flowing out of the river of Genesis through Deuteronomy. But that would mean that one would be contextualized enough to understand when the book of Joshua is literally playing on all these different themes from Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is, I think, connected to your point about history. So let's get back to Hannah's question. The question was, why is Abel's offering paid to and not Cain's? So we've been thinking a lot about gain and vapor, Cain meaning gain and Abel meaning vapor. And what does Cain bring? It brings a really nice fruit basket. Yes, brings an, <laughs> brings an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. Right. What does uh, Abel, vapor, bring? The choicest of the firstlings of his flock. So, there is such a thing in Torah as first fruits. There is such a thing as the choicest of the first fruits. And Cain brings the fruit of the soil. Vapor brings the choicest of the firstlings of the flock. Now, before we um, unpack the differences between these, because um, I would say these are distinctions with a difference, let's ask ourselves though, a sort of step one step back, what moment is this for both of these human beings? Now we already have, said it's the first time we're being told about anything they're doing in relationship to God. So let's just agree on that for the moment and say, but what is it that is it that's happening for each of them? They are sharing their gifts, um, their skills. Like this is like their, their life career in a sense. Um, they're sharing a part of that and they're sharing that with God. So it's them giving, bringing an offering to God of the thing that makes them who they are. Excellent. And what's missing in terms of God to them? In other words, they do this, but what didn't God do? Call to them. Like God didn't speak ask to them. for it. God did, exactly. God doesn't ask for it. Somehow, what? They seem to know that they have something that they should give to God. They okay. seem to just have this sense that this is what they're supposed to do. Right. So here we are. I want to say you could put a lot of words on this. I'll just put one, but I don't want to limit it to this. The first moment that I, one, anybody knows gratitude 
that I didn't do it all by myself. That feels to me like a really big moment in a human mm-hmm. being's life. Yeah. If you're giving an offering back to God, you're, you're basically saying, oh, wait a second. This wasn't just my gift for me. That makes me really great. I'm so good at raising sheep. Uh, you're saying this is something that, that I'm able to do by the grace of God. Oh, funny that Hannah would say grace. But yeah, bravo. Couldn't agree more. So, okay. I want to suggest we've all been there. Do you remember a time when it suddenly hit you? You, you, I, we didn't just do it ourselves. That is Hannah so beautifully said, uh, this is the grace of God. I'm thinking about art, which is sort of one of those things where people sort of assume like you have talent or you don't, um, or you, you know, you're either good at art or you're not good at art. Um, and I didn't really discover that there was anything special to me about art until I was in college. But I, when I really looked back, I realized that all along my mom had been cave, like creating a really creative environment that I'd grown up in where there were just art supplies everywhere that I could always be playing with. And I also realized that for me, creating art was really deeply tied into a collaborative relationship that I had with one of my best friends where we would create art side by side. And so there was a way of looking at the paintings that I created as like, these are mine. Wow. I'm, they're, they're so great. And then there was another way of looking at it where I realized the only reason why I'm able to see and create in this way is because a somebody created an environment where I got to play with paint and not worry about whether or not I got paint on the floor and B, I had somebody by my side who was helping me feel really grounded and excited about painting and, and who was able to give me a lot of inspiration. Um, and so it, it kind of took it beyond just me painting by myself. And still to this day, I don't really like to paint by myself or create artwork by myself. It, it's so much more powerful when it's created with someone else um, in a communal setting. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I, it's like, this sounds so odd to say maybe, but I don't really like to learn by myself. Yeah. It's much more fun to learn with others. So it's that first moment of the gratitude, the consciousness that it isn't all me, that there's something far larger outside of us. And we bring something. Gain brings fruit of the soil. Vapor brings the choicest of the first life. What has vapor brought? Uh, it's the best. It's not, it's not just something that I've created. Um, it's not the painting that's underneath my desk that I'm about to throw away because or reuse or paint over. It's like the painting that I'm most proud of. Um, and those are very different kinds of gifts. Well, first of all, I want to say mega bravo, Hannah. That was utterly spot on. And I'll just layer one more puzzle piece with what you just said. I'm bringing the future. The choices of the firstlings is what you would build the future flock on. 
And if I had to pick a conversation that's very related to Tove, it's learning what the future looks like, tastes like, smells like, and what does it mean to bring that as the offering to God? But I would say not just to God, but I would say in, in love, in friendship. What does it mean to bring the best of the future to my friend? And what does it mean to think about relationships that way? In this moment, um, in this moment, Vapor is really offering himself. And it's not even just easy to say. It, 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 um, it's not something that's just easier said than done. It's hard to say. To, to say, I will offer Jonah. Um, and one, the, the, the other piece that I was talking about in terms of idolatry is idolatry of job and career. But if you were going to even specify that more to me to say idolatry of service and to offer Jonah to the wrong thing, to, to the idol. Um, because that is also something that I've been very close to and very much in want of without realizing that it was the idol. Um, because in here we we see we see gain not to me the gain not offering himself or offering as Hannah said the the true almost fruits of his future, um, but had he offered that and just gone to perhaps Adam and offered that, or gone somewhere not to God and offered those. You are in a conversation that is pulsating through what does it mean to leave Egypt? And then you can catch the trajectory picking up again um, in 1 Kings 18 with um, Elijah and Obadiah. Um, and the question of whom do you serve Obadiah? Do you serve the king or do you serve God? And in that particular passage, even though it's the king of Israel, the king serving the king of Israel, it's not serving God. And what happens when you find yourself in those kinds of civilizational contexts? Any final questions, comments, thoughts before we move on to one thing time? It's a thought that I've been toying with this whole time, which is that this conversation is so layered in language around giving your gifts to God. And I wonder how each of us would define that for, for someone who is uncomfortable with using language about God. I would say as someone who's relatively <laughs> comfortable with um, usage of God and my belief in God, I still don't go out to the altar and burn um, a sheep or put um, a sacrifice up. And um, I think even for 
I think for everybody, we have the, the people and the places that ignite our offerings. And for me, um, it's taken a lot of learning to get here, but that has become a lot of the classroom. In That is a place that really um, sets fire to what I can give to those around me. Um, and the, the, the spirit that I can feel from others and give to others. Um, a quick thought. One of the things uh, I ask people to do when I get such a delicious question as what you just raised, Hannah, is what's your best time of the day? Uh, wouldn't matter. 5 a.m., 10 a.m., 2 in the afternoon, 6 in the evening. What's your best time of the day? Now take 15 minutes of that and give it to silence. Give it to prayer. Give it to writing poetry. Give it to what it would mean to take the best of the best and instead of using that for gain or for work, use it for something very, very different, for a kind of being rather than a kind of doing. How different are those 15 minutes if you are watching Netflix or if you are just being and noticing? And of course, what I'm doing there is I'm saying the choicest of the firstlings in this particular example is time. But it doesn't have to be time. It could be a lot of different things, but that's, you know, so it's getting people to focus on what is your choicest of your firstlings. And then what does it mean to take that and put it on an altar that we value? Uh, I just picked time, but it could be a lot of things. So I think it's one thing time. I think my one thing is how to see what I'm doing as not being for my own personal gain, but instead being something that can flow through me. Um, I think there's, you kind of have a choice about that a lot of the time. Um, you can see it as this is so great for me, or you can see it as this is, this is really great. Um, and so I want to sort of see if I can reframe it that way. Um, and what that will, how that will change my actions and my experience of those actions and the, the experience of those actions for everyone around me. I'm taking with me, uh, this broader sense of the, of what does it mean to walk with God? Um, it's something that has appeared in a couple of different passages that I've been reading recently. And um, th thinking about, especially what, as Hannah perfectly described, the transiency of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I um, so enjoyed so much, but the formulation that 
what is being asked for is Jonah or Alan or Hannah. Just, oh, that's what's being asked for. Of course. Easy to say, not easy to say, as you said, and even harder to even begin to walk into. But I feel like actually what we all three closed with is circling around that on some level or another. Thank you once again to all of you for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited to listen this ba listen back to this and to see what comes from this conversation. Um, it's always a pleasure. Mm, thank thank you. you.